Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Well, good day to all those who are listening to this studio broadcast. It's a direct continuation of the previous studio broadcast, and so I want to continue the vein of thought that we had started there, that being how that a spiritual son in obedience to a spiritual father can heighten the father's perspective of the nature of God or bring the father into an increased sphere of operation within the purposes of God for his life, not just his life personally, but for the joint purposes of God that attend both the Father and the Son. And we demonstrated this by looking at a text in Amos 3.3, which says, Can two walk together unless they be agreed? And we extrapolated several nuances of the Hebrew phrase Ya'ad, translated as agreed or appointed time. And then we concluded the broadcast by looking at the example of Enoch, who was the father of Methuselah, who walked with God only after Methuselah was born. And Methuselah means when he is dead, it shall be sent. So he embodies the principle of a son who is prepared to obey unto death. But that position elevates Enoch's walk. Enoch starts to walk with God after Methuselah is born. So Enoch's alive for 65 years. Methuselah is born. Enoch walks with God 300 years. And um, his, his walk is in a new level of oneness, which affords Enoch prophetic sight of things at the end of the age, him only being seven from Adam in his time. But his keen prophetic sightedness will bring Methuselah great benefit him fathering Methuselah with this knowledge and how for him to make sense of his present time. Now, I don't want to go and rehearse too much of that because I want to get straight into some new material. I want to demonstrate the same principle um, with other examples. Now, please remember, the thing we are looking at is we want more grace. And we want to establish certain positions in the earth or behavioral patterns to which the grace of God will be attracted. One of those positions is to establish yourself within the spiritual father, spiritual son, wineskin or dyad, so as to fulfill and obey God uh, irrespective of what the Lord commands the spiritual father to lead the son into. For both obedience of the father and the son will be an expression of humility and it's the disposition of humility that grace is attracted toward. Um, again, I want to stress that the obedience of the Son will have certain benefits to the Father, which ultimately will directly benefit the Son. At the end of the day, God's will will be accomplished. 
So let's look at another case study. This being the example of Abraham and Isaac. Now, much is made known, or much is made and is known of Abraham's obedience to God when he displayed a willingness to sacrifice Isaac in compliance with a command from God. So God told him, take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him on a mount that I will show you. So Abraham was willing to go, go through with an obedient action, very costly action, but he demonstrated, I'm willing to obey God unto death. Um, not just to kill Isaac, obedience unto death for Abraham in, in sacrificing Isaac would spell death to his own prophetic destiny because it wasn't like he could trust God for another son in and through womb, his prophecy that he would become a father of many nations could be fulfilled. Because the, the text in Romans says that it is said in Isaac shall your seed be. So it was in Isaac that Abraham's prophecy that he would become a father of nations would be fulfilled. Now God instructs him, take Isaac and sacrifice him. So God is, is really saying to him, take the very means or the conduit through which your personal destiny and prophecy as a father of many nations would come to pass and destroy that means, sacrifice that means. So Abraham was willing to obey God at great cost, even at the risk of sacrificing, in a sense, not just his son, but his own destiny in a bid to simply be obedient to the voice of God. Like we've been consistently saying, no man when he is prepared to obey God to the point of death, to ambition, destiny, or whichever, ever loses anything, but he gains everything. In fact, obedience to the point of death is the pathway to fulfill destiny. So I want to read the text in Genesis 22, verses 6 to 8. Also bear in mind, can two walk together unless they be agreed? Amos 3.3 we will see a son and a father, Abraham and Isaac, walking together in humility, which was expressed by obedience. And in this process, the will of God is effected for both individuals concerned. Now, here's the text. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 6 of Genesis 22. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Uh, by the way, this account is describing their movement or walking up the mount at the top of which Abraham is to sacrifice Isaac. So they're journeying or walking towards this outcome, this destiny. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Can two walk together unless they be agreed, right? Verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Abraham said to him, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. 
This is a very powerful graphic depiction and dramatization of the principle. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And specifically within the context of a father and a son. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that a father and son relate to each other in this way directly, in very overt terms. It is hinted at in other times before, but for the first time in very clearly um, in very plain terms, it's spelled out uh, in verse 7. You would notice, for example, terms like my father and my son. So the terms are used directly. Although this is natural father, biological, natural biological son, we're looking at the scriptures prophetically in reference to principles governing spiritual fathers and their spiritual sons. So... Abraham, or Isaac spoke to Abraham, verse 7, and he said, My father. Abraham said to him, Here am I, my son. So it's very intimate and endearing terms. So the recognition of who your father is, is key to obedience. There was the clearest uh, indication, there is the clearest indication in verse 7, that the two individuals defined each other accurately in the relationship. One calling the other son, and the other calling the, the, the other father. So from a spiritual son's perspective, um, your obedience towards an individual's commandment will be far more easily facilitated when in your mind that individual, specific individual, you know beyond any measure of doubt, is the one positioned to have oversight over your soul in the Lord and function as a spiritual father to you. Obedience will flow out from relationship. Where there's no solid relationship established, obedience uh, possibly will be aborted. Once a son has recognized and established that he is a son in a household, obedience will not be a difficult task, for he trusts his father completely, even unto death. It is clear from the narrative that Isaac trusted Abram. Um, he allowed Abraham to tie him on the altar, strap him up, raise the knife, and position himself to plunge it into him. And he did not resist the process, but there was great trust, a trust that was built out from a very clear perception as to what Abraham represented and a trust that he heard God accurately and was communicating the will of God accurately to him as a son. Now, notice in verse 6 again, it says the latter part, so the two of them walked on together. They walked on together in agreement to the place of obedience. And not just obedience, but obedience unto death. You can only come to the place of obedience when you walk together with your spiritual father. You, you cannot enter into obedience through any other way, but by walking with your spiritual father. If Isaac never walked with Abraham, you would not have been able to be obedient to that degree. Um, you have to have a relationship before obedience. So relationship with your spiritual father builds trust. And trust is essential so that uh, when your father speaks, you consider it as a directive from God himself, as the voice of God. You will never come to the position of dying to self unless you trust your spiritual father implicitly because it is him that will administer the death 
to your soul. Relationship built on trust is developed by the esteemed priority that the Son attaches to God's Word communicated through the Father. Notice, if you are going to have this trusting relationship with your spiritual Father, it is built on an esteemed priority that you, the Son, attach to God's Word being communicated through the vehicle of your spiritual father. It also demands that the spiritual son follows the spiritual father closely. This is done by tracking and listening to his teachings and where possible to physically be present at all meetings when he calls. Uh, this particular issue I will deal in a later broadcast directly with. Now, Isaac's obedience to Abraham in laying down his life to be sacrificed by him. That expression of obedience on Isaac's behalf actually brought Abraham into a new revelation of God as Jehovah Jireh. Please note that uh, you know the, the, the story how that as Abraham was about to plunge the knife into Isaac that the Lord spoke and said, Abram, Abram, do not take the life of your son because now I know what's in your heart. And Abraham looked and he saw a lamb caught in the bush and he exclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord is provision. Jehovah Jireh. There was a revelation of a specific aspect of God's nature revealed to Abraham. My point is, Abraham's perception of who God is as a provider was only realized within a context where his son was willing to obey to the point of death. And like I've been saying repetitively, the obedience of a son has the effect of catapulting the spiritual father into decoding aspects of the nature of God that before this would never have been accessed or seen. Okay? Now, is it in the best interest of the son that he obeys? Yes, it is. It's in Isaac's best interest that he obeys to the point of death because his obedience will have the effect of elevating Abraham's perception of the nature of God as a provider. But Abraham's revelation of God's nature as provider becomes Isaac's treasure and possession because Isaac is there on the mount too. So whatever Abraham perceives, Isaac is privy to. So as the father grows in revelation, the son comes into that revelation himself. So there's this joint obedience of a spiritual father and a spiritual son. Abraham was willing to obey, so was Isaac. How much more powerful it is when two obey. I call this joint obedience. Now Isaac, like I said, entered into the, re the revelation of God as Jehovah Jireh himself. Isaac's obedience unto death coupled in tandem with his father Abraham's obedience to destroy the conduit through which his prophetic destiny as a father of nations will be fulfilled opened him to a very powerful dynamic in God's character. That is God's nature as a provider. Jehovah Jireh. 
never before was that aspect of God seen redemptively by any human being on the planet before. It was opened to Abraham. It was, pre- pre- it was precipitated by the obedience of a son in Isaac. But that is not just the father's revelation because whatever the son, whatever the father sees, the son receives also. When a son obeys, the father's sight into divinity has the potential to enlarge. But the son too enters that perspective, that revelation, which will change the mindset and behavior of the son in references to in reference to how he, the son, would execute God's purposes in the earth in his day. Now, let me explain that, unpack that. Isaac obeys. Abram sees a view of God he's never seen before. Isaac enters into that same revelation of his father. That revelation of God forever will impact how he, Isaac, the son, in his own time, fulfills God's purposes in his day. Now, for example, Isaac never had a provision issue in his life because very early as a young man on that mount, he had a revelation of God as the Lord is provision. So in his own time, he never had scarcity and lack, never had a provision problem. I mean, Isaac would sow time, would sow in a time of famine, the Bible says. And he will, in the same year will reap a hundredfold. That's Genesis 26, 12. Isaac was never need-oriented, never doubted God's capacity to provide for him. All of this was founded in that experience of obedience of him to his father on Mount Moriah. Now, again, this is so powerful when two, that is father and son, jointly obey God. The power of joint obedience. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says two are better than one. Two always amplifies the potential attached to each of the individuals. One puts a thousand to flight, but two can set ten thousand fleeing. Deuteronomy 32.30 Where at least two agree upon anything, it shall be established for them. Matthew 18.19 says So principles governing spiritual things have tremendous impact, influence, and result. In any context where you get agreement between spiritual father and spiritual son, not just mentally or cognitively, but in agreement in terms of how they actually obey as fellow heirs, co-laborers, the results of the ensuant blessing and the, the divine, divinely determined outcomes are always hugely accentuated for the two of them as opposed to if any one of them obeyed separately. But when two obey jointly, the results always amplify. When a son obeys his father, it brings the father into rest also about certain aspects of your obedience so that the father's focus can elevate even to other issues. This is very important to understand. If a son obeys the father in a particular respect, let's say in in the reference uh, for finances, in the matter of finances, if a son is financially compliant to all biblical principles governing finance, 
spiritual father might never ever have to address him or even speak on those matters. So the spiritual father will not spend lengthy time speaking on finance. So then he can rest as far as that issue is concerned and perhaps focus on addressing other and more pressing issues in the relationship and for, or for issues relative to God's will governing their specific mandate. That a son obeys to the point of death and this elevating the father into a higher place spiritually is ultimately in the best interest of the son himself, like I've been saying. Because greater grace is accessed by the father and that will find its way to the son. Okay, so Esther obeys in her time, obeys Mordecai's instructions, and that has the effect of elevating Mordecai to prime minister. And now, obviously, Mordecai's position as prime minister will in no doubt have a direct benefit on Esther and upon the rest of the Jews in all of the Persian provinces. Now, Paul also intimated that his personal apostolic apostolic sphere or metron or spiritual influence will increase when the faith of the Corinthian believers have been enlarged. Remember, we trying to demonstrate how that the obedience of sons elevate the Father to understand aspects of God's nature or to function in greater arenas of God's will. And Paul hinted at this, that his apostolic sphere is going to grow and enlarge based upon the enlargement of the faith of the Corinthians. Let me read the text. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10 from verse 14 to 16. We are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, but we were the first to come to you even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so that so as to preach the gospel even in regions beyond you. So what Paul is saying, he's saying, as your faith grows, we, in other words, me and my associates, we will be enlarged in our sphere and we will be enlarged by you so that we will even be able to preach in regions beyond you. Paul is very clear here. His metron or sphere of influence will grow commensurately with the growth in the faith of the Corinthian body of believers. Now faith is expressed by works, which is obedience. What he's really saying is, as your levels of obedience grow, so too I will in my own apostolic sphere and metron. So Abraham asked Isaac to lay his life on the altar. Mordecai asked Esther to go to the king into the inner court at the risk of death. To the natural mind, these actions spell certain death, almost suicidal. But how do you obey someone's instruction that seems to be leading to your death? You must have a relationship. You must be trusting, must be convinced in your heart that the fathering dynamic that they bring to you is authentic, real, sincere, genuine, and accurate. 
You have to establish in your heart that this man or woman has been placed over your life to father your soul and to bring your soul to a place of rest and your spirit to a place of maturity in Christ. The primary reason that God has placed spiritual fathers over people is that they can come to this place of rest. Now, bear in mind that the obedience of a father and a son activates more grace, which God desires to bestow upon them both for the accomplishment of his purposes in and through that relationship. Amen. Now, let's look at another example in the persons of Ruth and Naomi. Now, I'm not going to go to the details of this narrative. I've hinted at it at the details of the narrative in prior sessions. Ruth clung to Naomi in a walk with her from Moab to Bethlehem. When Naomi took a decision to return back to the land of Bethlehem in Judah, leaving Moab after the death of her, of her, of her husband and her two sons, the scripture says that Ruth chose to follow her and Ruth clung to her. Please bear in mind that Ruth is cast in the role of spiritual son, Naomi as spiritual father, because in Ruth 4.15, Ruth is described as a son to Naomi, not a daughter-in-law. And yes, in the natural, it's daughter-in-law, but in the spirit, she's a son to Naomi, and she's described as better than seven sons. Now, so Ruth 1.14, Ruth clung to Naomi. The word clung is interesting. It's the Hebrew phrase or word debak, which means to join with and to stay. So there's strong commitment, strong loyalty hinted at here. Ruth's commitment to walk in agreement with Naomi is captured in the statement, where you go, I will go. Uh, and this is demonstrated in a walk characterized by humility which is expressed by obedience. Ruth obeyed Naomi consistently. As an example, Ruth 3, um, from verse 1 to 6. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it might be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, who, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself. Notice the instructions that Naomi gives her spiritual son, Ruth. Wash yourself. Anoint yourself. Put your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go, uncover his feet, lie down. Then... He will tell you what to do and you shall do it. Now, these instructions are intensely detailed instructions. Naomi is very, very specific. And in verse 4, the response of Ruth, she, Ruth says to her, All that you say, I will do. All that you say, I will do. This is a resolve and a commitment of an obedient action. And I will describe later. These actions were suicidal, just like the expectations that Mordecai had on Esther to approach the king. Just like the expectations that Abraham had on Isaac to go up the mount there to be sacrificed. But she obeyed. 
Verse 6 says, she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law, which is really a spiritual father, had commanded her. So Naomi says, I'm seeking wellness or security for you or rest for you by issuing you these instructions. Okay. The level of security and wellness that Naomi sought for Ruth goes way beyond the provision of personal needs, way beyond the issue of the provision of the Lord. Naomi prophetically was wanting to ensure that Ruth builds into the unfolding long-term purposes of God. And this is evidenced by how the book ends because um, the resultant marriage of Ruth, to Boaz, of Ruth to Boaz produced a son called Obed who became the father of Jesse who produced David, Israel's greatest king. And from the Davidic line, the Messiah, Jesus, would come from the tribe of Judah. So all of these instructions, while they seem domestic and personal and relate to the immediacy of their present environment, they have long-term effects in terms of how that private action will build something into the long-term purposes of God and even for beyond their time. This is going to be the ramifications of these private acts of obedience are going to be felt for generations beyond their time. In fact, you and I today are enjoying the benefits of Ruth's obedience because if Ruth hadn't obeyed that Messiah, uh, the Lord, our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, would not have issued forth from the Davidic line. So everything is one long continuum and has bearing upon um, a realm far removed from it. As such is the urgency and the priority to our personal obedience that we must give attention to. Now, when Ruth is told by Naomi, I will seek security for you by issuing you these detailed instructions. You must understand this. The word security um, is the Hebrew word manoah, which literally means rest or resting place. We must all come to a place of rest in God's things where we are not primarily concerned with issues of short-term provision only. Security and rest are only attainable through our practical daily obedience to the Lord, specifically within the spiritual father, spiritual son dynamic, and our determination to obey to the point of death. Ruth is instructed by Naomi to engage in intense personal sanctification. Notice verse 3, wash yourself anoint yourself, put on your best robes, etc. Intense cleansing, intense personal sanctification and preparation at every single level. And then she is instructed to go down, which is an, a, a phrase denoting humility, down to Boaz's threshing floor, a place of separation. The threshing floor was a place of, of separation of the unproductive parts of the grain from the productive parts. Right? So, all of the prophetic, symbolic indications of this venue, threshing floor, indicate processes that are simultaneously occurring within the life of Ruth herself. So she is to be humble. She is to listen to the Father. She is to prepare herself in personal purity, humble herself, go down to the threshing floor context, and they lie at his feet. Lie at his feet. 
And all of this is indicative of how a spiritual father, through instruction, can lead the son into complete redemption of everything lost of that son's estate in Christ. Now, I know I'm speaking generally, but I won't have time to go to the details of this book. But you need to study the book of Ruth in detail to understand some of the statements that I'm making here. The text says, she said, all that you say, I will do. The Bible says, and she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. To access um, a first level of provision. There was a level of provision that Ruth, Ruth had to access as an initial step, which was... Um, uh, symbolically expressed by roots gleaning in the corners of the field and then in the center of the field after the reapers. It was fairly easy. Okay, She listened to Ruth's command to stay in Boaz's field and she listened to Boaz's instruction later to stay after the reapers. That was fairly easy, but it still nevertheless required an obedient response. But now... The expectation leveled upon Ruth to be obedient is going to a deeper level of obedience. Now to go to the next level, the blessing of a secured future, a redeemed future, a marriage to Boaz, and the privilege of contributing significantly to the eternal purposes of God will require intense personal preparation, purification, and also complete, bold, and daring obedience. Now let me explain why. The instruction to lie at Boaz's feet was suicidal from a natural point of view. For this was usually a posture of married women towards their husbands. There was nothing improper or indecorous about Ruth's actions. Naomi was aware of her rights of redemption by the nearest kinsman redeemer, which was Boaz. So by natural standards, this act seemed blatant and presumptuous. Yet Ruth, fully trusting in the command of Naomi, she proceeds courageously to obey. Her obedience is a prophetic enactment of a reality she was about to actually enter into, that is namely actually marrying Boaz. So... Women would lie at men's feet in that culture in a suggestive act for marriage. Was Ruth being presumptuous in lying at Boaz's feet? No, she was being obedient to Naomi's suggestion of that act because Naomi knew that Boaz was a nearest kinsman redeemer who was obliged to buy back the property that they had lost when they left Bethlehem to go to Moab. So being aware of this principle in the kingdom of their day, the spiritual father Naomi, being thoroughly aware of principles governing righteousness in the kingdom, led her spiritual son to engage the process, even though in the natural if a man got up finding a woman lying at his feet, 
and disapproved of her, he was authorized by law to order her death. So hence I say this seemed suicidal. But the spiritual father was leading the son into this action, knowing that this act would ultimately lead to marrying Boaz, and in the marriage of Boaz, secure the rights to their property, not just to their physical estate, but to their spiritual legacy in contributing something significant to God's long-term and God's unfolding purposes of God in the earth. So she's not being presumptuous in lying at Boaz's feet. She was actually being prophetic. But Naomi had this prophetic perspective and she led her spiritual son Ruth into this by issuing instructions which when obeyed brought Ruth into the fullness of her redemption. What holds true then, the same hold true, holds true for you and I today. So let me encourage you, from a carnal natural perspective, your spiritual father's instruction or command might seem that he's leading you to your death. Yet in a way, he's leading you to death, yes, death of your flesh, but he's leading you to life of full redemption of your estate as a firstborn son in Christ. But in order to obey his instruction, as Ruth did to Naomi, you have to have an established relationship based on love and trust. Remember, the Bible says that Ruth clung to Naomi. She literally clung to her. And they walked on together from Moab to Bethlehem. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? Obedience is also a position you learn from accurate fathering itself. Uh, the reason, for example, Isaac was obedient was because his father Abraham exemplified the principle of obedience. Ruth's obedience was due to Naomi's obedience to return to Bethlehem. A son's obedience can be facilitated, fostered, and consolidated by the son's view of just how obedient the father is in his own personal life. Paul said of Timothy, you followed not just my, my teaching, but you followed even my conduct and my purpose. Naomi heard that God was visiting Bethlehem with grain, and so she left there. So Naomi's migration and, and journey back to Bethlehem was based upon her accurate hearing. Uh, both Ruth and Isaac had the capacity to obey because they had a point of reference from which they obeyed. They had a view of what obedience looked like in the lives of their spiritual fathers. Now Paul said to Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's incumbent upon all spiritual fathers to model obedience to their sons. When sons see this, they will have a standard or a, a benchmark, a, a model, a case study of obedience that will make their efforts at obedience uh, much more easily facilitated. Amen.
Another example would be the obedience of David and Joseph. Now, let me read a text from 1 Samuel chapter 17, from verses 17 to 20. Jesse said to David his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and ten loaves and run to the camp of your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander and to their household and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they had all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and he left the flock with the keeper and he took the supplies and he went as Jesse had commanded him. So here Jesse commands David to take some food and refreshments to his older brothers who are fighting with the armies of the Philistines, fighting as part of Israel's armies with the Philistines. And you know, their champion, the Philistine champion Goliath, had been taunting the armies of Israel for 40 days. You know the story, eventually David would arrive there, take on the challenge to fight Goliath, kill Goliath, and that would be um, the pathway to the fulfillment of his own destiny as king. David never ever went back to follow or to tend sheep after that day. It was the last day. So in 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 the my point being, the point is this Jesse placed a command on his son David. David had to obey the command. David being the eighth son of Jesse, one of the youngest. Um, Jesse is sending a literal boy, 17 years old or more, to a battlefield. So the context is dangerous. How does a father send a son to a context where the life of the son could be endangered? But like, like, like the other examples we've examined, David literally obeys his father to the point of not having any inclination to preserve his life. Now, here is another challenging thought. The command of Jesse to David was specifically... Go look, verse 18, go look into the welfare of your brothers. So here is what I hear the Lord saying to us. When a son obeys a father's instructions, specifically instructions that relate to the son, to obey the father and obedience which would benefit the welfare of brothers, that son, in not considering his own welfare, but prioritizing the welfare of his brothers in a context for which they seem most eligible and equipped to deal with, because they were men of war, but David didn't have a day's experience in war, but yet he obeys a father's instructions, instructions which would are designed to benefit the welfare of brothers, then... At that point, the destiny for that son exponentially is increased or accelerated. That was the last day David saw sheep. From that word onwards, he would be in Saul's courts and on a path towards ultimately being crowned a few years later as the king 
of Israel. And it says David arose early in the morning to comply with, with Jesse's example. And so it speaks to the earnestness and to the uh, vigilance and, and, and urgency he placed on his obedience to, to Jesse's command. And I think the same will hold true for us. So one singular act of daring obedience to a father will foster the welfare of the brotherhood and facilitate an increased momentum towards ruling and reigning um, in terms of the will of God for that son. Now, the same principles hold true for Jacob's command to Joseph to give food to his brothers. Because similarly, Jacob instructed Joseph to take refreshments to his own brothers and further to add insult to injury. It was brothers that hated him, brothers that misunderstood him, brothers that were jealous and envious of him. Principle persists. Obedience to fatherly command ensures corporate welfare of the brothers and will position this son for rulership. We know how the story would end up. The brothers will sell uh, Joseph into slavery in, in Egypt, but in Egypt is the context in which Joseph, Joseph's destiny becomes fulfilled. But it, it all starts with a son obeying a father to the point of death to enhance the welfare of brothers, brothers who hate him. But in the process, God sees the heart of Joseph and ensures that the destiny for his life prevails. Now you can read the details of this narrative in Genesis 37. David's obedience to Jesse positioned Jesse also in a favorable position. Like I said, the, the obedience of the son catapults or elevates the father into a vastly different domain of function and or will unveil to the father aspects of God's nature or bring the father into certain benefits and privileges. In the case of David, after Goliath is defeated by David, Jesse's house would be free uh, and free. Uh, let me read the text. It's 1 Samuel 17.25. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So the man who kills Goliath, apart from getting the king's daughter, being enriched himself with great riches and added benefit and advantage would be this man's father's house will be free so the term free freedom that will come to jesse because of david's killing of goliath the term free is a reference in hebrew culture um, that relates to freedom from the obligation to pay taxes or to fulfill any kind of public service so here again the obedience of a son brings blessing on the house of his father. For, for, for Jesse, it would have an economic 
benefit um, to his house. And I've seen uh, from my personal experience how that when the obedience of sons in a house escalates, they will open up to that house unparalleled economic blessing from God the Father upon that household. Now, getting back to Joseph, Joseph's obedience to Jacob would also many years later benefit Jacob. Jacob would pray for and bless Pharaoh. So let's backtrack. Joseph is instructed by his father Jacob to go see to the welfare of his brothers who hated him. The brothers envious and jealous of him sell Joseph into Egyptian slavery. In Egypt, Joseph is raised, second in charge of the nation, as it were. And after the seven-year famine, when the brothers and Jacob come down, and there's great reconciliation that takes place, one of, one of Joseph's executive administrations would be to bring his father Jacob to bless Pharaoh. So Jacob's function elevates you will read this in Genesis 47 verse 7. It says, Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. So Joseph's obedience ultimately led his father, blessing the most powerful political leader of his day, Pharaoh. And this ensured that God's favor rested on Jacob's family, which would become a great nation in that context of Egypt. So a son's obedience can position the father to function in very, very, very strategic roles. Just as an aside, after this Pharaoh dies, the Bible says that another Pharaoh arose that did not know Joseph. And he chose to bring hardship on the people of Israel because by that time they started to grow into a mighty nation. Point being, the first Pharaoh favored Joseph. The first Pharaoh was blessed with patriarchal blessing from the hand of Jacob. The new Pharaoh that arose, the scripture says, did not know Joseph. It's not that he did not know Joseph by acquaintance, because Joseph by that time would have died. But the, the phrase did not know Joseph meant did not know what Joseph represented. Because the Bible is very clear, Joseph himself said that God made him, Joseph, as a father to Pharaoh. So the phrase did not know Joseph literally means did not know a fathering dynamic. So whenever the Pharaoh of Egypt did not know the fathering grace, as the first Pharaoh in Joseph's time did, he knew the father in grace in that Jacob, firstly in that Joseph literally fathered him, because Joseph himself said that God positioned him as a father to Pharaoh. But secondly, also that Pharaoh knew that a blessing from Joseph's patriarchal father being Jacob. So when the new Pharaoh, when that Pharaoh died and the new Pharaoh came on the scene and Texas did not know Joseph, literally means did not know fathering, also did not know patriarchal order or fathering blessing from a patriarchal source. 
and he chose to enslave Egypt. So Egypt, under the pharaoh that existed in Joseph's time, Egypt in that time was a land of great salvation and blessing to the people of God. But the land that was once a blessing and a land of provision to them, a preservation of their welfare to them, in one point in time, that land changes character and now starts to enslave them when the leader of that land does not know spiritual fathering. So the absence of spiritual fathering can change the dynamic or the character of a person and or and or place. Okay. But I think it's just a wonderful thought to, to, to realize how that both David's obedience, David's obedience to his father Jesse, and Joseph's obedience to his father Jacob, both gentlemen were sent with food to fuel and energize and sustain their brothers who did not really understand them and were antagonized, were antagonistic toward them. But the obedience of these boys to their fathers elevated both their fathers into a different, a higher role of function, but also paved the pathway to the fulfillment of God's own will for their lives specifically. Another ancillary principle to glean from this would be this, that your path to rulership is directly contingent upon the degree to which you prioritize the welfare of your brothers, the welfare of your brothers. Sila, that's a Sila moment. Think on these things. Amen. One perhaps last example I would like to focus on is the relationship, and we'll do this shortly because of time, the relationship between Elijah and Elisha. Elisha is the spiritual son to Elijah. Now to receive double portion from Elijah, Elisha had to follow closely and walk with Elijah so he could see him as he's taken up because the proviso for double portion was that Elijah said to Elisha, you'll get double of whatever I have only if you see me as I ascend and I am taken up. Okay. So if you see me. So Elisha never left Elijah out of his sight. This literally meant he had to track him Walk with him wherever he went. Can two walk together unless they be agreed? So Second Kings 2 verse 6 says, Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, that's Elisha, said to Elijah, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And so the two of them went on. I love this phrase. So the two of them went on could be paraphrased as, so the two of them walked on because they agreed. There were, in this, in this particular scenario um, of the narrative of Elijah and Elijah, there were some other sons of Elijah that did not follow as closely as Elisha did, but they consistently stood afar off. And these did not receive double portion because they did not follow closely. 2 Kings 2 verse 6 says, 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood over against them and afar off and, and two of them stood by the Jordan. So some were far off, but Elisha followed 
closely, if we are going to follow closely, if we want double portion, we will going to have to follow closely. And so Elisha was obedient to his spiritual father in that if he wanted twice what his father had, he had to be determined to walk with him. And the two of them walked on. Similarly, you'll see this in the life of Jesus with the twelve. Uh, the Bible says in Mark 3, verse 13 and 14, he went up to the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and he could send them out to preach. So notice, when Jesus appointed the twelve disciples, he selected them and he appointed them with the specific intent that they might be with him so he could send them out to preach in other words he's not sending out anybody to preach that is not be that is not prepared to be with him now to be with him means follow closely walk with me in their case practically it was for three and a half years they cannot preach unless they are first with him failure to follow closely renders purpose attendant with the father-son relationship unattainable uh, do you recall that at one time uh, Peter followed Jesus from afar uh, when Jesus was handed over to the high priest um, and would be submitted to a process of ongoing trial before Pilate uh, just before being crucified. So in that scenario, this is Mark 14 verse 54. Uh, Peter was gripped with fear. Fear gripped him. And he followed, the Bible says, from a distance. Or he followed a far off because he was not willing to deal with the great cost associated with being too close a follower of Jesus. Jesus was just about to be submitted to the process of, of, of questioning and trial before Pilate and others. And at that crucial time, Peter distanced himself from Jesus. And you'll always find this, a spiritual son distancing himself from a spiritual father cannot walk in agreement, cannot walk closely because the spiritual son does not want to be identified with the cost or the trials, tribulations attached to the mandate that the spiritual father carries. So at times sons may follow from a distance because the cost of nearness and intimacy and closeness is, is too great. I want to encourage you to not allow distance to develop between you and your spiritual father because out of fear you shrink back because you're not willing to bear the costs of rigor, of endurance, of trial or, or whichever associated with the fulfillment of purpose attached to the father. Now, Also, just be aware of any kind of misunderstanding that might cause tension in the, in the relationship that must be quickly resolved so that the grace of God can flow unimpeded. You must follow closely. And we've discussed this in past segments, but you follow closely by prioritizing and being at meetings your spiritual father calls, wherever it's possible for you to be present. By listening, more importantly, by listening to the doctrine of your spiritual father, his teachings, not just once, but as many times as is necessary until the word becomes incarnate or established firmly 
in your mentality and behavior. And then obviously also by support. You follow closely by supporting him in practical ways where possible and by honoring him financially as well. So to pursue and walk in close agreement with your spiritual father is to pursue and access grace. Many do not understand this dynamic. There's a quantum and a quality of grace waiting for you, but all contingent upon are you willing to pay the price to obey a directive of your father that's going to cost you everything in your mind, but little do you know, open up the way for you to attain the fullness of your God-given destiny in the Lord. Jordan, the river Jordan means descending, descent or descending rapidly. It denotes a posture of humility and submission. Elisha followed Elijah in his descent to the Jordan. Now you and I have to go down, have to be humble. And let's do this rapidly. Let's do this quickly. Promotion and honor attend humility expressed by obedience of a son to a spiritual father. James 4, 6 says, Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Proverbs 29, 23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. There is no expression of daring, courageous obedience that a son is willing to demonstrate to his spiritual father that God will not reward, that God will not bestow great grace upon for that son. There is great grace within the father-son union. I have my prayers that we will all access the promotion and the honor that God desires to bring to us through our humility and our obedience. So I pray as you've listened, particularly to these last two or three sessions, that your heart is encouraged, that in your heart you resolve, I'm going to be a spiritual son of daring and courageous obedience. I'm going to be one that will not count the cost, one that will simply be intent on pleasing God, not questioning the credibility of my spiritual father in him having heard of God, trusting the relationship, having authenticated it by the Spirit of the Lord through discernment and revelation. But by my acts of obedience, I will benefit my brothers and their corporate welfare. By my act of obedience, I recruit grace in humility unto myself. By my act of obedience, I position my father in a position of rest to access uh, things about God's nature and um, to facilitate growth in the expression of God's will for his life in a vastly different, wider sphere. But all of these things benefit me as a son because as my father grows, so too will I. So I pray you've been greatly enriched, those of us listening. And that I pray the Lord will bless you in your pursuit to please him in the matter of obedience. For great grace will attend you. So may the Lord bless you. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That he is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance amongst all the saints which are sanctified.
लव यू बाय